Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIConf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I sat down with Leo Mayarovich, co-founder and CEO of Graphistry. Graphs have always been a big part of the data revolution. Think of the large graphs generated by the early social media startups. In recent months, I've come across companies releasing and using new tools for storing and, most importantly, analyzing large graphs. It turns out there are many problems and use cases that lend themselves naturally to graphs. So think about fraud detection in finance. So we'll talk about graphs. We'll also talk about the recent trends in data, particularly hardware and software acceleration that I think uh, uh, you will enjoy uh, hearing about. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Leo Mayarovich, uh, co-founder and CEO of Graphistry. Welcome to the Data Show. Hi, Ben. Yeah, it's been a while. Happy to be here. Full disclosure, I am an advisor to Graphistry. A treasured advisor. <laughs> so before we talk about Graphistry and graphs, let's talk about how actually Graphistry came about, which, as I recall, was from a project you had as a graduate student in Berkeley called Superconductor, correct? Yes, that was a lot of fun. So I think folks will have heard about it in a different name, where it came out of, we're working on the first multi-core web browser. And so folks, if you've updated your Firefox or have Firefox and updated it recently, you might have noticed it got a lot faster recently. So that was kind of the precursor to the servo and quantum projects at Mozilla. And Graphistry came out of the kind of phase two of that project. We're like, okay, now that we made the web faster, can we make visual analytics faster? And so we're looking at, can we do end-to-end GPU computing? And the graphistry is essentially phase three, where we are connecting GPUs in the browser to GPUs in the data center. So that, that was a lot of fun. So what was your uh, field of study in grad school? Oh, man, I was, uh, I was a bit of a dilettante, I have to admit that. So I was a programming language uh, nerd. So I was designing a lot of programming languages. So I think um, early functional reactive web programming. So stuff, if you've ever coded React for, for websites, um, that was kind of about 10, 15 years ago, I was doing that. And then at Berkeley, it was a lot of multi-core programming, a lot of uh, parallel computing, a lot of security um, security analysis. And so that kind of also actually dub- ended up dovetailing really nicely. Um, I think that the most fun project actually I did uh, was um, looking at the sociology of programming languages, just kind of what are the social themes for how thing- these things get designed and adopted. Oh, yeah, I remember that. you uh, That led to a... Uh, uh, you were on the talking circuit for a while, right? <laughs> yeah, that... Um, that, that was a pretty controversial one, so I thought people would hate it, but it ended up being, um, I think, uh, I think like best research of the year or something like that. But that, that's been a while, though, man. <laughs> that takes me back. So someone uh, smart and talented like you obviously could have done a bunch of things, could have got onto academia, could have gone onto one of these big tech companies, but you obviously didn't. So right after grad school, you basically jumped into graphistry. So uh, take us back to what was the... Uh, Genesis of Graphistry. So going back, so this is a few years now, it was the tail end of the superconductor GPU visual analytics work where we're trying to make um, kind of doing GPU accelerated visual analytics a lot easier to do. 
And I was looking around, um, you know, R&D labs, professorships, uh, maybe joining some other startup. And always the kind of question is like, what, what's the most, what's the best thing I could be doing? And it ended up being, well, why don't we just make a really big team and just take this stuff to the next level? And that was also around the time when um, GPUs in the cloud were first becoming available. Back then, it was all just Bitcoin miners. So actually, it wasn't even that. You couldn't even get a GPU on Amazon. Um, but we kind of knew that was coming. And so we're like, hey, let's do this. And so um, we were kind of, it started on the side of we we're just kind of bumming around San Francisco with local unicorns, trying to see if we can make this work for any problem at all to kind of look at um, a lot of data um, visually uh, with GPUs. And then as we're looking at the applications, we kind of went back to our early days of understanding, you know, log data, performance data, security data. And then that's kind of where Graphs really came from. It's kind of combining those two. Is how do you actually investigate through all this stuff? So I, actually, now that uh, as you were talking, I recall you guys were using GPUs for analytics before deep learning made GPU cool for analytics. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, we're. I think we're. I, I call us like middle generation. So uh, there's like a wave of GPU computing about 10, 15 years ago with all the CUDA stuff, but that was stuck in the academic world, all the you know matrix multiply stuff. And then when we're looking at it, we're looking at, and that was actually a lot of our work at Berkeley was. How can we tackle problems that people think are impossible? That was sort of the parallel browser. was like, how do we hardware accelerate that? And so when we, we were starting Graphistry, we were, first of all, what problems can we solve? Um, that's also actually how we led to Graph, where we realized there's a really good fit there, where it's just a lot of people, um, a lot of problems people are having that they couldn't do. And so that ends up also being an interesting for Graphistry. And I'd love to get into later in the show is um, when we started, we basically had to build out a lot of our own cloud infrastructure, a lot of our own front-end frameworks, back-end frameworks. And nowadays, I think um, basically GPU computing is entering the norm. And so, you know, Google TensorFlow, stuff like that. And so now we're actually getting involved with NVIDIA and a bunch of other uh, um, GPU companies to actually, instead of just building individual frameworks, making it so that we could connect all this stuff together. And so any Graphistry users, not only using Graphistry GPU code, but actually going end to end with a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, I remember actually the early days of Graphistry, it struck me that you guys were mostly doing DevOps, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh man, that was horrendous. Yeah. Um, the nice thing is we didn't have to touch half, uh, hardware, but it was also the beginning of software to find everything. So we were also just doing a lot of, you know, how do you, you go to a web page and then instead of just having a normal browser session, how do you actually get, you know, time slices on a GPU cluster? And then how do you actually get, you know, GPUs as a service at the software level and at web scale and all that stuff? And that's actually still people, you know, three, four years later, people are still building basic layers for that. We luckily for our stack, we've kind of moved on from there. And so, um, you know, we're Docker and all that stuff. Um, so we, we built that out. And for our users, that's easy, but it's, yeah, still quite a road. So speaking of your users, as I understand it, your users are non programmers, right? So they're analysts. Yeah. Um, I'm thrilled when somebody could do SQL. <laughs> it's it's, it's real, reality we have several personas. Um, so we started on the data science world. So if um, a lot of folks are using, you know, Jupyter notebooks, Databricks notebooks, all that stuff. And so we'll have um, those data scientists and even developers using our APIs um, embedding our, our stuff. But we I kind of call those the sort of the data one percenters. And we're, I'm really interested in basically everybody else where not because you're not great at data, but because you don't have the time to dig into all that stuff. And so I, I like to think of, for example, a Splunk user or maybe an Excel user. How do we get those folks so that you want to start looking at, at you know, the scope or progression or correlations in your data? And so we end up building not just the GPU stuff, but a lot of our work nowadays is how do you visually interact stuff and maybe 
GPUs are going on the back end, code generation is going on the back end, all that stuff. But as an analyst, I'm just clicking around data. So it ends up being a really fascinating challenge. Like, how do you do visual programming, essentially, without the user realizing it? So in, in uh, many ways, then, the end user is a domain expert. Uh, so they have some context for the data they're wading through. And so how what's the uh, how do you... Uh, onboard someone into graphistry. So how complex is the user interface? Yeah, so I'm actually going to answer a different question. Okay. <laughs> um, so, but I, I think it gets at it, is basically the persona we think about is somebody doing an investigation. And this type of person today is already doing investigations, but they're trying to figure out, you know, the Splunk query language or the Elasticsearch query language, or they're not even and they're just hoping they could do the dashboard. And so kind of getting closer to your question now is um, one of the cool things we built is a way to help automate that the workflows through those investigations. And so it took us a while to figure this out. But very cool thing we do now is to provide very quick value for, for an investigation team as we come in and say, hey, we'll just kind of do a ride along We we'll say, hey, how are you investigating? Take us through where most of your investigation time goes today. So imagine you're you're handling a fraud incident, or you're handling a security incident, or you're handling an outage, they'll walk us through step by step how the query jump into Splunk, write a query, gather data, jump into some other tool, hit an API, gather more data, maybe open up Notepad and start, you know, recording things they're finding. We'll actually do a ride along on kind of their typical investigation workflows. And then we'll just go back and say, hey, we can actually turn that into executable visual software. And so that's actually how our onboarding is. We just sit them and say, hey, where's your time going? There are certain things, we're, certain types of analyses we're finding are very common in the security and fraud space. And then we just come back and say, here's your visual playbook. We just turned that into to visual software, visual workflow software for you. So the idea then is that uh, there's an alert for an incident up front, and then what they would do is drill down to uncover what's causing this uh, anomaly. Yeah, it's almost um, kind of question of like, what does data wrangling look like if you're not a data scientist, but a, uh, an analyst? And what I mean by that is like, you could be on the res reactive responsive side. So kind of what you're saying, like there's an alert and there's just kind of the standard operating procedure, of like different data sources and tools that you need to check. And you kind of, you know, you get a clue in one tool and go to the next. But there's also, for example, for the more, we call those like tier one, tier two analysts often. And, um, but there's also, for example, tier three analysts, hunters, uh, threat intelligence, folks like that. And they're, they might, they might actually have their own notion, for example, of tradecraft or um, operating procedure, for example. Oh, I'm at a bank and I need to, or we're often buying new, you know, uh, subsidiaries. And so we need to take a look at their network and kind of do an audit. And there's certain thing, workflows we have to do through that. So, you know, load in, we have to load in all of their network traffic to get a feel of what their network is. And then we have to do these things. Um, so, so it actually could be alert driven, but it can also actually be sort of exploratory or driven by like a, a bunch of things you have to dig through. So uh, your examples uh, are mostly in security, but I take it this approach and this tools and the stack and apply to other contexts. So for example, I'm thinking, Leo, uh, let's say of Black Friday or Cyber Monday, mm. right? Some uh, massive uh, sales activity happening and there could be uh, incidents and, and alerts happening on that day as well that you would need to investigate. Yeah, I feel like we're like slowly getting into the whole graph thing. But one thing I, the way I, I kind of talk about it nowadays is you already got the notion of workflows that I was mentioning where, you know, probably for any analyst, you have this 80% of thing you do. And I think what you're hitting at, hinting at here is something I'm, I'm calling sort of 360 views. 
uh, where whether we're needing uh, security three on a user or an incident or device, or maybe we're on in the DevOps or, or um, network ops world and we need a 360 on um, some you know deployment or some cluster or some um, rollout that get, getting the ability to given some rough topic and then wanting to get different types of data sources um, around it and then getting you know data maybe one or two steps away for, for different notions of one or two steps and getting those 360 views to work through. Um, I, I think that gets at it. So let's take a, a specific example, right? So let's suppose I'm an analyst, I'm working with Splunk and Splunk has a uh, user interface, a search query language that I've mastered. So why isn't that enough? We see that a lot. And then that gets very, how do I put it, very emotional for, for the analyst. Um, and so I think it is really exciting when Splunk kind of brought in the whole notion of a centralized log store with a very nice search interface. But in terms of actual daily workflows, that feels a little bit like hitting two rocks together. And so if you think about where, let's say you are re- responding to an alert, and let's say there's a piece of malware on a laptop. Well, if, I, if I'm a small security shop, I might have five or 10 uh, security tools and um, feeding into my log store, and I might be getting, I don't know, like millions of things a day. If I'm a, if I'm a bigger enterprise, I might have, you know, 100 different security vendors feeding context into my investigation. And so now all of a sudden, if I just type in the IP address behind that alert, I just get a whole bunch of stuff in my logs, and it's not really that useful. So basically, as soon as you have to go beyond dashboards and something like Splunk, your investigations already just basically instantly switches from being a few minutes to easily hours or days. And so um, we're kind of looking at basically two problems on that. How do you cut those workflows down to, you know, from days and hours to, you know, minutes? And then when as part, and that's a workflow question, and, and also kind of an intelligence question. And then there's also when you are looking at, at data at any point in time, can we do better than just showing you a dashboard or do better than just showing you um, a bunch of a, a really, you know, infinitely long list of search results? And so I, I don't know, I feel like uh, if you've ever had to pour through logs, you kind of know why um, right. Elasticsearch and Splunk are just, they can't be the future. So then uh, your alternative, Leo, to a uh, long uh, list of search results of log entries is what? Yeah, so to be clear, actually, I, I love that Splunk is there. Um, and what I and from a data perspective, I think it really solves two hard problems. One is maybe, you know, different people talk about the performance uh, uh, aspects of it, but it does give a place to stuff your data. And so it's centralized, like it gives everyone a place to centralize all their logs. So that's great. I think they, they've, they've been achieving that. Other other folks are doing that in interesting ways now too. Um, and we actually will connect to them. And they actually do another thing, which is they provide a path for people to kind of structure their data. Uh, again, there are other ways to do that. But, you know, increasingly when we come into a shop, they'll have like a mostly configured Splunk. And, and, we're, and that, that's kind of our starting point. So what we do is basically we kind of bring in three things. One is we bring in those workflows I described. So given an alert or some sort of workflow, how do you pull together data from, you know, different Splunk indices, from different APIs? Maybe you have both Splunk and Spark, you know, and you want to investigate across those together. We create the, what we call these visual analytic playbooks. And then the other two things are how we present that data is we do, you know, you'll, you'll see your normal lists and bar charts and, and time bars, but we also do something interesting with graph. And so that's the second bit is you can actually see answer questions like scope and progression and root cause a lot more easily than you could have with just uh, normal uh, interfaces. And then kind of going back to that beginning of the conversation. All right. So now we have the workflows pulling in data. We have this um, cool UI with this graph stuff kind of helping you get a sense of it. We actually, and then we use the GPUs so that if any one, one step of your investigation involves a lot of data, let's say we have a lot of NetFlow traffic logs, we can actually handle that. 
and show that um, very quickly. The name of the company is Graphistry. So Graph is uh, central to what you do. So in my work, uh, organizing two conferences, the AI conference and uh, Strata Data Conference, uh, I, one of the resurgent topics is graphs. You know, it was a hot topic a few years ago, kind of died down a little bit, but now I'm, I'm, uh, I'm hearing about it again. So from your perspective, uh, why, why are graphs suddenly uh, coming back? They're really flexible, so it's, it's multiple reasons. If I was gonna think broadly about it, is it powers a lot of, first of all, there's a pure analytic reason. There are certain types of queries it could just do efficiently, and that's why you have a graph database. And that's basically, if you need to do a bunch of joins, it's really great at that. And so a lot of logistics systems are going to benefit from that. Some some AI systems that have to do these strange queries. For a lot of the graphistry users, it's something a little different, which is um, more about intelligence and more about um, things like correlation. And so I'm seeing a trend of things like... I've been calling them correlation services. And so what's basically going on is, you know, like maybe a few years ago, everybody was excited by, you know, Hadoop and Spark and all that stuff. And so they built out these data pipelines. And now, you know, people could do scale out analytic queries, you know, like take in my alerts, and filter them. So kind of like maybe a more scale out Splunk something or um, cheaper per byte Splunk. And that, and that was really exciting. But then they realized, hey, for my actual analyst team, I can't have them writing these really low-level SQL queries. And by the way, these are pretty low-level. And so they wanted to get into stuff like, kind of was talking in the beginning, like 360 views of things. They want to get into stuff like um, correlations to actually explain what's going on at a, at a more intelligent level. And I think that's where Graph really starts to shine. If we look at a lot of data, it's, it's pretty heterogeneous. And so Graph ends up being a really kind of easy way to deal with that. And it's also, there's a lot of questions that are basically, you know, what's nearby, almost like near, nearest neighbor type of stuff that graph becomes like a very um, kind of both at the query level and also at the, for us, it's interesting, also at the visual level, um, very interpretable. Maybe maybe in a little bit, um, I'm, I now have a, a pet hypothesis about graph as being the front end and the UI for machine learning. That's a, <laughs> that might be a topic for another day. There are some business use cases where graphs end up being very natural, right? So one such case I'm thinking about is fraud, it turns out, right? So if you want to uh, figure out a fraudulent transaction, uh, it may require a series of hops on a graph. Yeah. So I, I can give a couple of examples here. So the if we're talking about like financial crime, you know, you've got a transaction or user and you want to know who's... You know, like, for example, if the user has multiple names, but they're all the names are using the same address, you're going to want to kind of see that relationship. Or maybe the user is visiting your website and making a purchase. Your machine learning system gave you an alert and a really beautiful detection that, hey, you know, we have uh, 50 percent confidence on this transaction. Somebody has to take a look at it, that the graph becomes a really nice way of saying, hey, what are the, other, the user's other interactions with our website or maybe the same IP's other interactions with the website. And that those are these kind of 360 things. In security, um, where, where a lot of my mind is today is something like uh, called kill, uh, kill Chain, where if you think of any bad incident, there's probably a sequence of events around it that led up to it. So, you know, the initial, you know, somebody scouting around, somebody breaking in, maybe they kind of make that initial break in and then it's going to be probably be going a while on for a while. So it's going to kind of escalate and get really bad. You can you can kind of map out that kill chain. So in a sense, a lot of what, what we're thinking, the reason Graphistry does a lot of graph is we let people see that sort of progression of events and reason about it. Um, and uh, actually, I want to go back to one thing you were saying there. So when people are using the graphs, um, especially in an enterprise setting, I, I think there's a kind of a, a process change that's happening. And kind of one of those questions that if you're, if you're building an enterprise data lake type of system, 
the, the question of if you have this capability. So it's great if you you know can get individual alerts and create cases and, and investigations around individual alerts. But increasingly, you want a higher level thing. And so, for example, instead of treating looking at individual alerts or individual events, you really want to think of basically incidents. And an incident is basically a, a collection of alerts. So, for example, maybe there's um, some fraud going on. If somebody figured out how to do fraud once, they're probably going to try doing it multiple times. And so you don't want to be playing whack-a-mole on little symptoms of it or each individual case. You want to get that full grouped incident. And so graph becomes basically a way to create a real correlation service. I'm going to keep using that phrase, I think, <laughs> in this conversation. So like, can we actually bucket all those together, You know, stack, rank them, show them. If you click on one alert, can you see the rest in that bucket? Um, and, and so I think graph is kind of almost the lingua franca for, for doing analytics and, and data um, applications for that kind of problem. It's interesting to actually to hear you talk about this because uh, I'm advising another company called Anadot and they kind of use some of the same phrases, business incidents, uh, and they're, they do mass, massive amounts of correlation of time series and things like this. But at the heart of it, it's all about business incidents, which... Uh, uh, actually, it's not something I encounter on a day-to-day basis, this this way of framing. Yeah, uh, consider yourself lucky. <laughs> it's a quick way to get to, to burnout. And so and we, we'll, we'll hit things where, um, especially in the security and fraud, where you kind of have a, a tier difference, where kind of the tier one, tier two folks who handle most of this stuff, tier one, they'll probably churn out in one year. And so a lot of the question we look at is how do we get investigative best practices into the hands of, of tier one folks before they churn out? So could they, on starting day one, could they actually have these these workflows built in or passed down from the um, more senior folks? And we are finding that's actually becoming a very compelling model. So I, I can now like spit out examples like in security, like, you know, incident mapping and, and malware analysis where that's true. Likewise, in fraud, like um, online transaction fraud, um, that kind of thing. Um, but we're, we're starting to see that even in other areas. Like um, my fiance does genetics and, you know, they'll get a, you know, they'll run an assay, get a big sample, or they might um, do some uh, health record work. And there are just certain things you want to kind of, in the typical case that you just want to work through. Um, and so I, I think that's actually um, going to be an exciting change. It's, it's sort of like chatbots for, for professionals. So another way to think about it. So uh, you you mentioned earlier the notion of graph database, and you know when you talk about database, there's different workloads, right? So there's transactions analysis, search, and things like that. But it seems like to me that at least from my perspective, because I'm not a, a OLTP person, but uh, it, the interesting thing about this ne- new generation of gra- graph databases like MapD, and uh, I'm more familiar with uh, Tiger Graph, for example, is that uh, they can really uh, scale. Right. So, and, mm. uh, and, and, uh, I don't know. So what's the current state of how do analysts interact with these things? Because, uh, back a few years ago, Neo4j was pushing open cipher. So is there a standard uh, query language that analysts are using now? Oh man. Yeah. So there's a lot of churns. So, and it, just to be clear, are and, we and, talking and about, I, uh, I think, I think, uh, uh, data stats has their own query language, right? Yeah, so and just to be clear, so we're talking about graph databases, not GPU databases. Right, right, graph databases. Okay, yeah. So Map MapD is a GPU database, and man, I could I could talk my my um, your head off on that one. Uh, but yeah, so in the graph database world, um, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of churn. So maybe a couple of years ago, um, Titan, which was basically almost like a meta database, where it kind of have different backends like HDFS, things like that, Cassandra. Cassandra. Yeah. So so their DataStack bought out their team, and so they went quiet for a while, and that ended up I think helping. 
you know, like the original guy or the older teams like Neo4j kind of, you know, re- re- rebuilt stuff, but also created a, a space for, for example, the BlazeGraph GPU database, the, I think, Graph SQL, oh, Tiger Graph, I guess. Tiger is Graph, that. yep, yep. Yeah, so it gave room for those type of groups to come up. Um, for example, I was on, on stage. By, by the way, Tiger Graph is interesting because the team came out of Twitter and uh, they spent several years just yeah. building the system quietly in C++ and then uh, released. And so it seems like a great system. Yeah, and I think um, the, I think there are two really interesting um, kind of uh, examples here. And, like, uh, and they're kind of in this interesting middle. So when, um, so I was, I was actually on stage on uh, Amazon reInvents a week ago, two weeks ago, with the Amazon Neptune team, which was oh, basically... Yeah, another one. Yeah, and so those <laughs> guys, so they're on one end of the spectrum where... They spun out of the GP, um, the BlazeGraph. A lot of the early BlazeGraph GPU team um, joined, ended up joining Amazon to launch their their graph database as a service. So we're we're on stage helping them launch and kind of showing, you know, okay, now you have this thing for these kind of 360 workflows. We were showing how to do investigations on it. I think they do. Like, I'm actually not sure where they are on scale, but but I, like you know, BlazeGraph GPU guys, I know I know where they are on interactive. Are these systems effectively silos? In other words, there's no system. Uh, there's no SQL. There's no connectors between these things well yeah they, it's it's changing i think it's growing up so now you have on you have multiple parts on the spectrum so blaze graph may be on scale definitely on interactivity then you're going to have the uh the janus graph which is sort of this and this and data stacks graph which is the successor to titan they're on the scale out and the way to work with them in one sense yeah they have these um kind of funny graph query query languages like cypher and i think uh the whole tinkerpop stack yep but but what I'm finding very quickly is you really want it sitting side by side with other stuff. And so I think the, the there's this graph consultancy, like Graph for All, um, and Graph Connect, something like that. They uh, they had this beautiful article of like Neo4j and Elasticsearch, how to use those together. And that's actually passing a lot. The other stuff. So does that include your data lake and distributed file system? Yeah, it's, it's, it's like classic Lambda, right? Where, you know, some of it goes to fast uh, joins in your graph database. Like you, you take your Kafka pipe, it goes into your graph database to let you do some graph queries. It goes into, you know, your, your Hadoop or Elastic stack to do search. And then you're going to want some applications here to let the analysts kind of look across both of them. And so um, we're, we're at Graphistry, we're focused on that latter problem of as you have all, all this data infrastructure, how do you get your regular analysts to actually use it all? So there's no one system that rules all. Huh? Yeah, I, I wish, man, I wish there was. <laughs> Life would be so much easier. But yeah, yeah, you don't, yeah, you don't yeah. want to be like siloed in. Actually, speaking of uh, systems and architectures, one, the other pattern I'm noticing is the following, right? So um, uh, people have a variety of storage uh, systems, right? So they can have distributed file systems, object stores. Mm. And uh, these systems might even run across different cloud uh, services. So then uh, you need some kind of uh, layer between storage and compute so that... Uh, uh, you don't go crazy. So I'm thinking of uh, a system like Aloxia or a format like Arrow. So is that yeah. is that something that you're? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So I, the, so yeah. So the Aloxia, that was the they used to be at Berkeley. They're the Tachyon project. So yeah, we were actually using them in earlier work. Yeah, my my head is now really more on interactivity. And so Tachyon, or I mean Aloxia, was about how do you speed up a bit of the storage for for Spark. I'm really interested in sub-second uh, work nowadays. And so what's uh, I was on stage uh, actually with NVIDIA also a few weeks ago um, talking about um, something called Go AI. And so I think this is uh, 
I forgot. What's the name of this uh, podcast? Is this like the like the big data? Like, the data what, show. The big data show. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I think you're going to love this because this, this is really, I feel like they're only, for me, they're only really a few big ideas really every, every year that I get excited about. So this is one that is basically, I've been excited about. It's actually our team has been contributing to is we've been rallying around the arrow spec, but we're doing it around GPUs. And basically, I think we're what I've been calling sort of the Hadoop moment for GPUs, where now people are kind of aware, it's like, okay, GPUs could do Bitcoin mining, GPUs could do deep learning, GPUs could do databases, we're showing GPUs could do event data investigations, they could do the intent on visual analytics. And so what the arrow arrow is really exciting, because it's basically saying, hey, if you want to have really fast interop between your, your libraries and, and GPUs, you want basically millisecond interop as you go between libraries and tools. This is the in-memory columnar format so that you don't have to do data um, serialization across each thing. So this is like, for example, why Spark is so slow, is that it spends most of its time just like moving data between boxes and then serializing, deserializing them, doing all these like silly... But this is similar. Uh, this is kind of goes back to my point that you need a layer between... Uh, your compute. Yeah. Uh, so Arrow is effectively that format. That yeah. You, yeah. So it's 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 so Arrow is like two things, and it took me a while to understand it. And, and this is really what the GPU Open Analytics Initiative is about. So Arrow says, hey, we should agree on a in a file format. And in Sparkland, you just be you know copying these files back and forth, and you know that's going to get a bit faster. But what the GPU folks have been saying is like, look, we're high performance computing people. We actually want it to be fast, not just scalable. And so what we and when I say fast, I mean like you know you press a button, you immediately get an answer. And what we, the way to think about it is like, okay, you have the the file format, but you also want sort of a protocol so that instead of passing files around, you do it all in place. Right. And, and to get a sense of why that matters is, you know, some of our users will just have one GPU and then they'll have a whole team just using one GPU. Other of our users will have, you know, 100 gigabytes of GPU RAM, like from a few GPUs stitched together. But all that, you know, those 100 gigabytes of GPU RAM are all shared in memory. And so now if we're doing communication across different, you know, like, for example, you know, load it into some data cleaning thing, um, pa pass your data through some data science, like machine learning clustering thing, and the pass it to Graphistry to actually look at the thing and then you know, run some filters. If we could do that without any file copying, it's all in place, all in the GPU, never has to touch the CPU. That's that's the other half of Arrow. So, and then that's the go what the uh, kind of Go AI initiative is about is like how do we actually enable that? Um, and, and I think that's to me kind of goes circling back. That's why I think like 2018 is sort of the beginning of the Hadoop moment for GPU analytics. And by that I mean like not only are we using GPUs, but we actually have a kind of a kind of like how what HDFS did for the big data world. We have a way for GPU vendors to kind of give you out of the box composition. And then build like end-to-end -end workflows across all these tools like pretty easily. So there's also, a, a, I think there's a parallel initiative uh, um, within Intel where they're accelerating the Python stack. Um, so that might that might be uh, something that will happen in 2018. And the other thing I want, I guess, uh, what's happening in the other GPU communities like OpenCL? Is there any, any <laughs> is there any parallel initiative? Sort of. So yeah, like, I mean, there. I think a lot of the OpenCL world has been focused at lower levels of more for compiler people and for kind of more the hardware vendors. So they're doing stuff about how do you do like a generic instruction set type of stuff, um, which it, that's actually really important. But for the data world, it's not as important. That's that's more important if you're doing like mobile graphics and, and trying to do portable libraries there. I think the, um, the surprise for me, and, and I think... Uh, an interesting thing about the Arrow stuff here is that it actually started in the CPU world. So Wes McKinney, the um, 
sort of like the genius who did pandas, I guess is what he's going to be remembered as. Um, he, he realized that even in this, he was coming from the big data side where he was just trying to get and then the CPU side where he's just trying to get interop for the CPU world. And so when, when uh, at Graphistry, at least when we're trying to figure out how to bring this into the GPU world, we realize, you know, whether you're in CUDA, whether you're in OpenCL, it's, it's still just memory on, on a GPU. And a lot, uh, it's, as long as you just have, if we get about the level of just passing pointers, then what GPU framework, what GPU tool you use, ideally should be transparent. And so to me, it's not an OpenCL versus CUDA thing. Uh, and video guys may disagree, so they're free to do whatever they want. Um, but to me, it's just how do we bring GPUs everywhere? And then uh, actually, the other people that are big proponents and big supporters of Arrow are the Dremio team, right? Yeah, those are great folks. I'm, I'm really excited by that. Um, so I wanted to give them a shout out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we have a blog post coming out with them, I think, uh, probably this week, next week, where um, we're talking about how we do a lot of our end-to-end acceleration and how um, kind of similar thing there. So name of your company is Graphistry, but the other data format that's uh, resurgent, I don't know if how much you guys work with uh, uh, this type of format, is our time series. Mm. So is this something that uh, is uh, capturing your attention as well? Uh, not it, it used to like I, I think it's really interesting. There's a what is it like a? I mean, there's a there's a bunch of time series databases, for example, right? Coming yeah, like InfluxDB, those guys, like all all that stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, and th- timescale DB, and uh, and uh, and by the way, just uh, uh, tying this back to batch versus real time. The other thing that Leo that I've encountered is this whole notion of uh, long time storage for streams. Uh, I'm, I'm encountering more and more of the streaming communities, different uh, cohorts of the streaming community saying, look, uh, we want to be able to store these streams long term because uh, people are wanting to ask questions that combine what's happening now with what's happened two years ago. And they don't want to query two different systems to answer those questions. Yeah, that's that's fair. I, I feel like there's like some sort of like Maslow hierarchy uh, going on here, where <laughs> for like for like a for for when you're trying to get data stuff done, when if you just have a raw recording, you're basically going to know when the thing happened, what that instantaneous value is, and then maybe if you're lucky, some GIS coordinate, right? And so if you're doing maps, if you're doing time series, you're doing that kind of stuff. It's like this very low dimensional. And you must encounter this too, right? Like for example, yeah. there, here's an incident. Okay, so but. Uh, how does this compare to an incident we we saw two years ago? Is it yeah. the same thing? And well, then, that, and then if I have to pull the two years ago from another system, yeah. And and so I I think uh, when people say time series, and then I, I think they mean different things sometimes. And so when when I talk to like a IoT person and they say time series, or I talk to um, a monitoring person, and they say time series, they're going to mean that really low level stuff. And then basically you need to have some sort of inference layer that brings structure to it, right? Like, you know, here's the actual... Um, we used to talk about dynamic time warping, right? Way back in the day. Right, right. Like, you need to actually pull out shapes and, and correlations across these things. And when we talk about event yeah, data... Yeah. Wait a minute. That, so you, you made it appear like dynamic time warping is old school. <laughs> I guess it is. It is uh, now in the maybe. world in the world of deep learning. It's old school, right? So. Yeah, I mean, I've seen deep learning like 10, 12 years ago. So uh, <laughs> I need to catch up to what people are doing nowadays. But yeah, I don't know. These I it's this, I don't know. It's all technology, right? Right, right. But yeah, right. like I, mean, I guess like the, what I'm going on is like if, if if somebody wants to compare an incident today versus incident yesterday, and that that's common in fraud and security. Like you know, oh, you know, we think we fixed it. Did we fix it? Or something's weird is happening. Can we actually show what the change oh, so is? Do, do, do they uh, don't they ask something like this? Looks like something that happened two years ago. Yeah. Well, I, I don't see a lot of the two years ago, but I do see a lot of like week week over week. It's like 
you know, what what's different now? Like, are the hackers still in here? You know, that kind of thing. And to me, that's not a time series question. It is a temporal question, but it's it's really an event comparison question rather than a time series because it's it's much higher level. No, no, no. So I'm I'm talking about uh, temporal for streams, right? So yeah, 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 yeah. But on the other hand, it is true that uh, there's a lot of new time series databases out there. And to me, the surprising thing is that I, you know, I thought that. Uh, we had these systems already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's... And uh, I guess the users... That's a safe so, investment if you're a, if you're a VC, I'd say, because like, we know the data is just going to keep going up. So. No, no, no. <laughs> but I mean, I guess to me, what uh, was revealing about it was because I don't uh, touch these systems on a daily basis. Uh, so it must be the case that the people who are touching these systems aren't happy with the existing system, right? So. Yeah, it, it's this brutal combination of scale and and, and compute and, and latency. Because like, is, if it's a real time monitoring, and it's, it's just it, yeah, there's a lot of fun there. Um, that's that's one area where I think if somebody could figure out how to combine GPUs with scale out, that I think that'll be really exciting. By the way, speaking of hardware, I think next year will be interesting for hardware because uh, you know, I mean, so there's deep learning inference and there's this deep learning training. But there's also edge versus server, and uh, I think all in all of these dimensions, you have hardware startup, established companies, uh, established hardware companies, but also non-hardware companies jumping into the fray, right? Like with Google and uh, the TPU. But uh, Google may just be uh, the starting point here. But you know, in China, there's a lot of interest around hardware for deep learning. In all these dimensions, and actually, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Kurt Kutzer of uh, UC Berkeley, I, I visited him, and we th- started talking about it. And he he's excited about uh, what's happening in hardware uh, 2018 moving forward. Yeah, that's man. We were I was when we were starting Grabstream, we we're trying to pick, figure out how to build our stack and make it in a future-looking way. We were, we were trying to make some bets about like where do we think you know how as a service GPUs are going to be when are FPGAs and ASICs coming. When are they coming to the level that you know? Instead of just a, uh, I mean, I mean, clearly, you know, clearly, ASICs will uh, will rule in deep learning training at some point. Yeah. Right? Well, the, so I think what's interesting about this is the the boutique aspect, where you know, if you go to Google, probably uh, Microsoft and, and some of the Chinese companies, they're 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 printing, they're big enough and have enough cash that they can hire teams to print their own chips, right? Um, you actually speaking of Berkeley, go to the the Risk Five guys. They're they're doing a lot of this open source. Uh, um, hardware to actually help like smaller teams build out full like full chips. And where it gets interesting to me as more as an application developer is if you know if I was gonna you know, pull out my crystal ball and look out like you know where do we need to be five years from now for building future forward is that you know for the next few years it's gonna be the big guys doing this like they're the only ones who can afford to basically take that you know GPUs are a 10x hit in productivity and then you know FPGA FPGA is another 10x you know that kind of thing they're the only ones who can take the hit now. But it, what, what, if you look at what they're doing, is they're also building the tool chains around it. So um, there's an ecosystem angle to it, right? So it's not exactly. just it's not just pure speed, right? So you have to bring the ecosystem. I guess yeah. uh, broadly speaking, in GPUs, you have OpenCL and CUDA, and then also uh, there's the I guess the energy consumption. Yeah, and and I think uh, what, where I'm I'm excited is um, you know again like the Google guys could always do what they want, you know, and that, and that they have there's going to be you know five companies like that, right? And what I, what I really care about is, you know, I, I said in the beginning, I'm, I'm a programming language designer by, by training. I really care about what software most people are going to be writing. And if I look at what's going on with a lot of the performance stuff is that, 
when you you're actually only going to optimize so much of your code or you only use so many abstractions like you know the data scientists are going to use like data frames um some folks are going to be using certain machine libraries like maybe h2o and what i think is going to be coming and i'm guessing you're talking about this or 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 the deep learning guys will say everyone will just use deep learning and deep learning deep learning will will write the code itself yeah the software (laughs) 2.0 yeah we should probably chat about that but uh um uh, but uh, but I, I think what's going to happen, and this is me just looking at what's going on with tool chains, is that you know maybe I don't know three years from now, five years from now, performance folks on smaller shops or just regular normal stuff, they're going to have a few kernels they really care about. They've already exposed are the parallelism for like you know by writing GPU kernels or you know your CUDA or OpenCL. That stuff should translate to ASICs super well. So it's just about the tool chains coming up. I'm I'm even going to go a step higher, which is I mean right. uh, people will only care about APIs not kernels, yeah. right? So for example, I mean, uh, if if you have a popular API like Spark, maybe it you just keep writing to that API and who knows what's happening underneath. Yeah, exactly. And, and I, I guess I'm, I'm taking it from how the sausage is made is like the way we build this, these things, it's it's going to be accessible for us to, instead of, you know, having a CUDA uh, code generator, just have an ASICS code generator. You know, the hard work started like 10, 15 years ago. Like you look at the IBM FPGA work, like that now they're trying to do it for i believe for spark already so it's coming yeah the fpgas are uh, are interesting because then uh, at least uh, microsoft has embraced them on the, for deep learning inference right yeah and uh, i think for search too like um not necessarily through deep learning so yeah it's 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 showing up everywhere and i think uh for most developers and programmers they will probably just use some Cloud service like that. So the, <laughs> the hardware abstract, the, what happens in the hardware level is up to the cloud provider, really, right? So yeah, I would love it. You know, you write your, you know, your SQL or your whatever. You're on the back end. You have your database as a service, interpreting it, or your, you know, Spark as a service. And then on the back end, if we find there's a hot job that's used every day, yeah, we'll, you know, print some hardware and make it faster. And, and in many ways, that's why I was asking the question about graphs because uh, if they're silos, then uh, it'll be frustrating for developers. But if they coalesce around some way to for of, uh, for developers mm-hmm. to interact with these graph databases, like a, a common query language for example, then you might see really broad adaptive graphs, right? So. Yeah, I, I think that's the, the Blaze Graph team to me is the real proof point on that, where they showed that they can start ch- chiseling out common graph kernels and put them onto uh, into, into CUDA. And then if you look at NVIDIA, they have the NV Graph library. And, and so I think you can kind of basically map down graph queries to that stuff. And, you know, getting it down to GPU level data parallelism is basically the first step of going to hardware. So when when you talk to hardware guys like Kurt, right? So they they always caution you. You know, you guys always talk about processors, but at the end of the day, it's interconnects, uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> so where where do you where do you fall in this conversation? Yeah, if you go back to the Go AI thing, um, there's a there's a fascinating chart of, um, that was going around maybe a year or two ago when you know everyone's like, oh, my big data is bigger than your big data, right? And and, and so there's this, you know, like, it's interesting to bring data into the picture, right? And so and it's a fair thing to do. And so somebody looked at, for, for most workloads, how much data is actually necessary. And so you get this nice little curve. And I, I don't remember the exact number, but you find that for most software, like most data software, you know, like 100 megabytes or one gigabyte or 10 gigabytes gets you super far, right? So have, and, you, have you talked to the deep learning people? What? <laughs> Yeah, well, th- that they're also there's like a field of deep learning showing you don't you don't even need as much data as they're doing, right? So that, that's another thing. But um, right. but what we're finding is um, you look at that trend and then you look at the memory scaling trend, 
and you find that for and also keep in mind that there's a difference between training and using a model right, right, right but right, um right. there's a but anyway like for for most software like and most software is kind of dumb like sql stuff right and, and like run the world runs on sql and excel and so for most of these kinds of software if you can fit it today, if you can fit it in a hundred gigabytes, you could fit it on a in, a in just one GPU box. And because of memory scaling, that's still happening. You know what? Like, yeah, maybe some somebody needs uh, more memory, or somebody needs a terabyte, somebody needs more. But if you look, there's always going to be that 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 guy. You know. But for most people, I, I think we're already we might have already crossed over the threshold where just a GPU cluster today is like way more horsepower, way more memory than you can use, and and that number is just going to keep going up. What's the fault tolerance? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's um, yeah. We've been we've been lucky in, in this world where we didn't have to worry about that stuff so far. That I'm actually not in, not in touch with that. Like I'm I'm really curious. You know, like that. What is it? The alpha particles? Like the like, I don't know how that works in this world. Right, 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 right. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, and uh, uh, for people who want to follow Graphistry uh, and what. Uh, Graphistry is up to. I think the website is just graphistry.com, right? Yep. Super simple. Thank you, Leah. Yeah. Maybe uh, my my call out here is uh, if you're doing a security fraud stuff, you're on an investigation team, and you're you know you're using Splunk, Elasticsearch, that kind of stuff. Feel free to reach out. And we have uh, for more of the developer and data science crowd, which might be more and more common here. And you're doing stuff like notebooks. Uh, actually, just send send us an email, and we have actually a developer program where kind of I don't think we've like written it too publicly, but we actually share access to our, our GPU visualization service. So right in your your Databricks notebook or Jupyter notebook, you can connect some pretty ridiculous plotting stuff. So we're always happy to share it with people doing cool new uh, stuff. Anyway, uh, thanks, Ben. Uh, it's uh, always a blast. You can follow Dio on Twitter at El Mayaro. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.